This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to focus on the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, the most successful alliance in modern history, probably the most successful alliance in most of human history. And that's a big thing to say, but probably true. Successful in the sense that it has, for more than half a century, uh, brought together countries uh, on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean to uh, collectively act for their defense as a group. And uh, it has generally worked to the defense of its members. That does not mean there have not been crises and problems. Uh, But NATO has had remarkable resilience. And lest one thinks that NATO is archaic, it is now at the center of uh, debates and concerns about the future of security in Europe. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has raised uh, concerns about further Russian aggression into territories that are part of NATO. It's also raised questions as to whether NATO should expand further east to countries like Ukraine and provide them with the protection that they've long wanted. We are fortunate today to be joined by someone who I think knows more about NATO now than almost anyone else. He certainly knows more than me, which is the best thing a graduate advisor can say about one of his graduate students. Uh, This is uh, Brian Frizzell. Uh, who is both a distinguished military officer and a distinguished scholar. Uh, Brian is a colonel in the U.S. Army with 20 years of active duty service. He's commanded at every level, from platoon through battalion, and he served three combat tours in Iraq, which is extraordinary. Uh, From 2014 to 2016, Brian served as a squadron and regimental operations officer for the 2nd Cavalry Regiment in Germany, participating or in and planning NATO exercises in 12 East European countries as NATO adapted to Russia's annexation of Crimea and various Russian attacks in the Donbass region. So Brian has extensive experience in NATO and extensive experience dealing with Russian aggression. Brian holds a Bachelor's of Science degree in International Strategic History from West Point, the U.S. Military Academy, a Master's in Policy Management from Georgetown, and he's finishing his Ph.D. at the LBJ School of Public Affairs here at UT. And Brian's Ph.D. is on the history of NATO and how NATO has dealt with uh, internal crises and differences among its members and how it has been able to produce and encourage cooperation among its members despite these crises. Brian, uh, thank you for joining us. You're the right man for this moment, I think. Hey, Dr. Suri and, and Zachary, thanks so much for for having me on. Um, it's an absolute honor. I'm super excited to talk about a, a, you know um, topics that um, I'm just so passionate about. Um, I, I do want to open, though, with a quick disclaimer um, that you know any views expressed here on this podcast are my own. Um, and, and do not represent Department of the Army or Department of Defense, and certainly not NATO policy. But uh, I'm excited to have this conversation. We're excited to have you on, Brian, and thanks for taking the time. We know how busy you are with both your military and your scholarly duties and your family duties right now. So <laughs> we feel fortunate to have you on. Before we go to our conversation with Brian, uh, we, of course, have Mr. Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. Uh, what is your poem titled today, Zachary? Ode to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. An ode to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, We're moving into new territory here. I love it. Let's hear it. 
Ode to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. You worship your own sanity. You hold yourself so righteous. You draw the borders with a pen. Here the free world. Here the fight is. You leave us to the enemy for lacking the good sense to have chosen the path of righteousness before Khrushchev built his fence. And yet we hold you dear. You hold us too with warmth. We cannot help but wonder at your missiles and your core. I would not trade your wide embrace, even for a thousand Swedens, but this could be you that stands right now upon the cold street bleeding. And please, remember, I know you do at night, that just because it's not your mother, not your brother, doesn't mean it's not your fight. You worship your own sanity. It's true, it is quite clear today. You have not forgotten the firebombing night, the storming beaches day. You have not forgotten the feeling at the crosshairs of their nukes. You do not feel any joy when it's the other man who pukes. But please, they are bombing my apartment block. Please, they are storming my beaches in the snow. The banks of my great rivers ache at every blow. But please, they took my son, they took my daughter. And please, sir, if it's not a bother, I stand in front of tanks in the center of my cities while you sit and sway to your peacetime ditties. You worship your own sanity. The sky shall not fall, pray. You have not forgotten how the bombs dropped, how you sank their greatest fleets. Sir, today these are my countrymen. Today those are my streets. I love it, Zachary, and I love the mix of very serious analysis and also some humor. What is your poem about? My poem is really about trying to understand NATO's role in global affairs from the perspective of those countries like Ukraine that have been left out at, to their great detriment from, from the NATO alliance in recent years, and, and trying to come to terms with the fact that while NATO promises in many ways peace and freedom, it also... It also restricts and leaves out so many others. Sure, sure. And and there are those who think NATO has expanded too far, and then there are those, you're implying this, who think NATO has not expanded far enough, right? right? So, so Brian, I think that's a perfect place to start. Um, why does NATO look the way it does? Why are countries uh, like Poland a part of NATO? It's obviously a late entrant into NATO. Why are countries like that a part of NATO and not countries like Ukraine? How did NATO come into being? Sure. So, um, first of all, I just want to say I love listening to this podcast, um, mostly for for Zachary's poems, and so <laughs> give me he's giving me um, a lot to think about there. Um, and uh, he he just something he said in there made me think about this being the first TikTok war um, that we have going on today. Um, so, so NATO, of course, was um, you know was was founded in 1949 with uh, its 12 original members signing the Washington Treaty. And of course, this is um, when, you know, much of Europe is in, you know, the ashes and just really beginning to recover um, from the devastation of World War II. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's sort of the original charter of transatlanticism. Um, you know, the United States and Canada from uh, North America are two of the original um, members and then, and then 10 um, at the time, just Western European countries. And um, I, I think one way to to, to think about why is NATO, you know, why are the particular 30 members today uh, up from the original 12, like, um, you know, why has this come to pass? 
I, I think to some degree, international relations theory shed some light on this. And I think NATO, when it was founded, um, really fell more into the realist uh, kind of, uh, you know, IR theory camp. And it was, you know, it, it was always for something, specifically the principles of democracy, individual liberty and rule of law. But it was really against something just as much. And it was against uh, the Soviet Union and what it stood for. Um, and it was all about the collective defense uh, of Western Europe at the time. Um, and then, you know, um, in 1989 through 1991, um, when, you know, to the surprise of uh, many, um, the, the Berlin Wall falls, um, the Warsaw Pact dissolves, the Soviet Union disintegrates. Um, and, and NATO's really their reason for existing, um, i.e. the Soviet Union, um, you know, uh, is no longer uh, such a threat. And so, um, you know, the, uh, the London summit um, in 1991 is really when NATO leaders um, ask one another, you know, what is our reason for existing now? And I, I think you, we, this is when we see a fundamental shift really from sort of the realist IR theory to really liberal uh, internationalism um, and more back to, as I mentioned at the beginning in 1949, NATO was always for something, not just against the Soviet Union, right? And so really in 1991, this is when we start to see consideration of promotion of democracy, um, expanded cooperation and dialogue with uh, former Warsaw Pact members and even former Soviet states um, in Central uh, and Eastern Europe. Uh, and of course, over time, the two biggest tranches are in 1999 with Poland, Czech uh, Republic and Hungary being offered admission. And then uh, in 2004, when, you know, seven more um, allies are, are admitted in um, of particular note, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, which are the three former Soviet states. Um, and so I think there's this tension inside of uh, inside of NATO where it kind of goes back and forth between realism and, and liberal institutionalism or liberal internationalism, I should say. And, um, and I, and I wonder now if we might be at another inflection point, um, you know, where collective defense of Europe, um, it's a re original reason for existing there with NATO. I wonder if that, um, again, becomes the, the central task of the alliance. That makes a lot of sense. It's a very helpful way of thinking the diff thinking about the different motivations that have underpinned the development of NATO, including its expansion after the Cold War. Brian, before we move on to that topic, uh, which you've laid out so well, just give us a sense, both as a scholar and as a military uh, leader, how does NATO function? Most people can at least identify it, but very few people know how it works. Some people think it's just a U.S.-led operation. Others have argued, including the last president, that it's a mess and that people are taking advantage of others. How does it really work? Sure. So um, one of the great uh, – one of my central critiques in, in, in my dissertation is that um, NATO historians, scholars, and, and I would just say everyday uh, pundits treat NATO um, from a, you know, with the state uh, as the central unit of analysis. And NATO is often considered just an aggregation of X number of members' state preferences. The United States, of course, um, has always had the largest economy um, and the largest uh, military inside of NATO. And, and therefore, you know, its preferences are seen as counting, you know, the most relative to other allies. And, and I think that that's, um, uh, you know, a fundamentally insufficient 
um, means of understanding the alliance and how it works. Uh, the institution of NATO matters. Um, and the institution of NATO, specifically its political headquarters um, in Brussels, um, and then its military headquarters at Shape uh, in Moans. And I think uh, too often uh, we overlook the key role that institutional leaders, uh, represented by the Secretary General, um, uh, you know, at the political headquarters in Brussels, and then um, the uh, the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, particularly during the Cold War, but but even still today. Um, really play essential uh, roles in, in, in what policies or adaptations uh, NATO makes. And so I think NATO is, um, you know, we have to account for the institution uh, as well in, in, in any kind of outcomes and not just treat it as an aggregation of states. And just to build on that, Brian, one of the points you make so well in your dissertation that I think is so relevant for today is that First of all, the different states uh, have a say in what NATO does. The United States doesn't just get to call the shots, but also that the institutional leaders of NATO, those who have, in a sense, left their own uh, government services and been seconded over to NATO, uh, either in a political role or a military role, that, that they operate and have great influence on the decisions NATO makes. Is that true? And could you could you explain to us how that works? Because I don't think most people understand that. A absolutely. Um, and I think that was a, a great synopsis of, of what I find in my dissertation. But uh, another one of the central themes um, that you just described um, is the power of um, what I call transnational interpersonal networks. Um, and so, um, you know, there, there um, are a community. It's not formally organized. Um, of just experienced uh, NATO hands. Um, it could be political leaders. It may be uh, many times academics. Um, sometimes it's retired military officers. Um, and through their um, experience and their jobs, their assignments over their careers, um, working in NATO, they gain a really rich um, understanding of sort of what's in the realm of possible, either politically or militarily, um, for the alliance um, you know, to, to be able to do with whatever the issue of the day is at hand. Um, I, I want to sort of foot stomp on something you, you, you touched on with your previous question, Jeremy, um, which is that it's really key to understand NATO is a consensus-based organization. That means with today with 30 members, all 30 members have to consent uh, for NATO to, you know, to take a policy action. Um, and, you know, I, I think sometimes we see how hard it is in a, in a simple, you know, to, to find a simple majority um, right. And, and so one might imagine um, that it can be difficult to find consensus. And so a central critique sometimes is that that limits um, the boldness, let's say, of NATO adaptations, uh, because you need all 30 members to agree. Now, with the power of transnational um, interpersonal networks, uh, in one of my case studies, I look at the NATO training mission in Iraq, which begins in 2004 following the Istanbul summit. Um, and of course, this is on the heels of NATO is trying to heal its wounds over the decision um, by the American-led coalition of the willing uh, to go to war in Iraq. And of course, um, you know, uh, several NATO allies, most notably France and Germany, are adamant opponents of this, um, while others like the United States, United Kingdom, and many of the newer allies in Central and Eastern Europe uh, form the coalition of the willing. And so, you know, the, the alliance is really at a low point here. Um, and its political leaders get together um, at, at the uh, Istanbul summit in 2004 and say, hey, um, you know, we would like NATO to have a role in Iraq. 
um, and um, the SACUR at the time, General James Jones, um, who later is the Obama administration national security advisor, um, realizes that there, there is no military plan for NATO to have in Iraq. And so he quickly, um, he, he leaves the Istanbul summit on June 29th, rather than flying back to, to shape headquarters in Belgium, he immediately goes to Washington, DC. Um, he calls, um, he calls a, just an informal network of advisors. Um, some of them, they're multinational on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, some are academics, uh, some are retired military officers. Uh, in one case, it's a, a former secretary general. Um, and they convene uh, very hastily in Washington, D.C. and say, you know, what type of military mission do we think is politically palatable and, you know, will add value on the ground in Iraq? And so, um, you know, they come up with three lines of effort, um, which is to train the Iraqi security forces in Iraq, a second line of effort to train them out of Iraq, and a third line of effort, which is to equip the Iraqi security forces. Um and based on the advice and experience of these sort of old hands, um, that plan is ultimately approved and the NATO training mission in Iraq um, moves out with those three lines of effort um, and I think makes a pretty significant contribution uh, over seven years to developing the Iraqi security forces. And so that, that, that's kind of an anecdote that I think really captures the power of transnational interpersonal networks. That, that makes a lot of sense, and that's a great example to see that at work, even in a controversial uh, setting, as in the, the war in Iraq. Uh, Brian, do you see um, merit or um, not in Vladimir Putin's claim that this transnational network and this alliance is inherently threatening to Russia? I do not, um, because I think it takes away the agency of about 15 Central and Eastern European countries. Um, ultimately, these are countries um, that have sought democracy, they have sought uh, individual liberty, and they've sought to become part of the West, um, politically, militarily, economically. Um, and uh, I think that their vote counts just as much as Russia's. And so uh, do you see ways in which NATO could have worked more effectively with Russia that were not pursued recently? And why were they not pursued? Yeah, so there's um, one of the the sort of inflection points is at 2008 at the Bucharest summit um, that I think is very relevant today, um, you know, for list, for our listeners to understand at the at the Bucharest summit. This is where NATO offers a map or a membership action plan um, to Ukraine and Georgia. Um, at the time, um, Putin had made um, a, you know, a, a major foreign policy speech earlier in the year at the Munich Security Conference, um, implying that territory, you know, uh, territorial uh, borders and boundaries change repeatedly over history, um, you know, and, and you know, neighboring countries' borders weren't sacrosanct to Russia. And so once NATO offers a membership action plan, to those two countries, uh, right after that is is when we see um, you know Russian military activity in Georgia, um, and and then ultimately down the road in 2014 and, and today in Ukraine. Uh, and so um, I think as as we think back in in 1991, um, Russia uh, was offered um, you know uh, you know a, a spot in NATO's partnership for peace along with other former Warsaw Pact members. Uh, and for a time, it was an active member. 
Um, but after a few years, Russian interests sort of fell off and, and they stopped participating in NATO. Do, do you think that um, Putin's um, obvious uh, obsession with Ukraine, and, as well as Georgia, and his uh, anger at NATO expansion, were there things we could have done in retrospect, even if it's predominantly driven by his own desires and his own preferences? Nonetheless, are there things we could have done? Some have argued that we expanded NATO, NATO too fast. Some have argued we could have done more to build peaceful bridges between NATO and, and Russia. You've lived through this as an officer and you've studied it. Uh, what's your take on, on the decade before where we are right now? So I think, um, you know, obviously in 2014, when Russia um, annexes Crimea and then, you know, sends in, uh, you know, uh, little green men um, to the Donbass region, it's, it's kind of been, um, relations have been at rock bottom since then. Um, but, but I do think that there were some opportunities uh, prior to that. In fact, if we look at um, NATO's, uh, you know, most recent strategic concept uh, from 2010, uh, it refers to NATO, uh, it refers to Russia as a strategic partnership. Um, obviously, that uh, you know that phrase looks pretty out of date uh, and irrelevant um, as, as we look at today's events. Um, but um, y- you know, uh, fi- finding peace and partnership is also a, a two way street. Um, and and um, you know, there's there has not been uh, much indication uh, from the Russian side, despite um, overtures from numer- numerous uh, presidential administrations for a Russian reset, um, and, and also from the institutional leaders of NATO, from NATO secretary generals, um, you know, to, to, to find ways, uh, you know, towards peace and, and a common worldview. Why do you think that is? Why is it that Russia seems to, to find itself at, at constantly at odds with NATO, or at the very least sees NATO as an inherently hostile force? Sure. So, um, you know, Vladimir Putin has, has famously said, um, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century was the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And so um, more recently, I think you know, as recently as last week, we've seen in his speeches where he also talks even beyond the, you know, the, the 50 or so year history of the Soviet Union. And he talks about the Russian Empire. Um, and he sees Russia as a great power and Russia has a, you know, a right um, to a sphere of influence. Um, because of, um, again, because of, you know, the, the, the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, by and large, um, have demonstrated um, a desire um, to, to, be part, to be free, to be part of the West. Um, and those countries reside, um, you know, their, their land is where Putin uh, understands the Russian sphere of influence to, to reside. And so um, there's inevitable conflict there. Brian, I want to be attentive to your um, assets that you are not to, that you not, cannot necessarily share in our discussion. Uh, with that said, what can you tell us about how NATO is responding to the Russian invasion of Ukraine in the last uh, six days? And I, I think it's also worth noting that uh, um, you know German Chancellor Merkel um, for sixteen years um, she worked um, you know to bring peace. Uh, and partnership through economic trade. Um, and, uh, you know, as a result, um, you know, today we see that, uh, you know, about 40% of German, uh, of German, uh, Germany's energy needs comes from Russia. And um, uh, unfortunately, that 
does not seem to have uh, satiated uh, Putin's uh, desire to invade neighbors. Right, right. Why do you think he's invaded now? Uh, I think as we look at Russia, um, they have uh, long-term economic uh, decline uh, projected, I think, as a larger portion, you know, because their economy is so reliant on um, oil uh, and natural gases, um, you know, as, as many countries around the world um, pursue renewable energy. Um, they also have long-term demographic problems. Um, they have poor public health. Um, and and I, I think um, for that reason, um, Putin may realize that Russia is probably as strong today uh, as it will be for a really long time. Um, similarly, um, as he looks at uh, Ukraine, um, and we've seen Ukraine aggressively uh, move towards the West. Um, and I, I think that um, at the end of the day, Putin, um, Putin's number one concern is uh, staying in power and regime survival. Um, and it really undercuts um, his autocratic model um, to see a successful democracy aligned with the West uh, right next door um, in, in what he considers his ethnic kinmen. Right. So in many ways, this does echo certain elements of the history of World War One and other periods when uh, a particular power sees itself in its, its maximum moment of leverage and sees trends working against it. This, this is an old argument among many historians, which is that countries uh, concerned about their decline are actually some of the most dangerous countries. Um, that said, Brian, w- what is NATO doing? How are we responding to uh, Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine. So, so there's a number uh, of initiatives from NATO, and, and many of them started in 2014 and have, are, you know, have been accelerated over the past six months. Um, and I think we'll see them, uh, you know, continue to evolve uh, over the next few years. So, um, I, I, again, I think 2014 is the key moment to understand, and this is, of course, as I said, starts with Russia annexing Crimea. Um, and, and NATO at the 2014 Wales Summit does a number of things which are relevant today and beyond. Uh, NATO adopts a readiness action plan, um, and this is where they triple the size of the NATO available NATO response force on the military side, create a very high readiness joint task force um, for crises like this, uh, for example, that could be employed. Um, and, and then on the, um, on, on the political side, all allies um, agree um, to spend 2% of their national GDP on defense within 10 years, so by 2024. Um, and that was a significant milestone for the alliance in terms of bur- burden sharing. Um, a- as we look at initiatives um, going forward, um, s- six months uh, before um, you know the, this war in Ukraine started, the NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg had already initiated a strategic concept review and process. As I mentioned earlier, NATO's most recent strategic concept is 12 years old now, uh, written in 2010. And so this summer, uh, pre-conflict this summer, uh, NATO intends, uh, intended um, uh, to, to agree uh, to a new strategic concept uh, at the Madrid summit in June. Um, and I think it will be really interesting to watch because this strategic concept process was started before there was uh, the crisis in Ukraine. Um, And so it'll be really interesting to see uh, what stays the same, uh, what moves beyond. I I really love the process that NATO is using, though, uh, to drive adaptation. Um, So NATO has produced two reports 
um, over, you know, in the past uh, in the past few months. One of them is called the NATO 2030 report, um, you know, written by a bunch of leading experts. Um, and in that one, we see calls for um, increased national resiliency, uh, among other things, um, you know, um, energy security um, as another initiative. And then we also see um, NATO produces a second report independently created. Uh, it's called the Young Leaders Report. And, and I think that it's really important. I think NATO is really getting it right um, to get the perspectives of multiple generations uh, of NATO scholars as it looks how to posture um, it, it itself going forward. Um, I certainly, um, you know, can't predict the the outcome uh, of the current conflict in Ukraine, but we, we absolutely are seeing um, NATO aggressively, um, you know, seek to create a deterrence effect uh, along its eastern flank. Um, nobody knows at this point what Putin's endgame is. Uh, he hasn't said, it. is it, uh, you know, does it go beyond Ukraine? Um, and so I, I think it's, it's not coincidental that we see um, the former Warsaw Pact members and former Soviet states, particularly Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and, and I would put Romania in this category too, as the most vocal, um, bilaterally, not through NATO, but bilaterally are transferring the, the largest number, for example, of anti-tank weapon systems uh, to the Ukrainian people to defend themselves. Um, and so we see that the NATO response force has been activated for the first time for a collective defense purpose, um, you know, since it was created. Um, we've seen increased deployments uh, from, from the Germans, from um, the British, uh, and from the Americans um, to further the deterrence effect, um, you know, uh, for the forces that were already in place in, in the three Baltic countries in Poland and Romania. And many are saying, including the President of the United States, that uh, this moment has strengthened NATO. Uh, German Bundeskanzler Olaf Scholz, uh, in, in announcing a, a major new German contribution to NATO, transformative contribution, uh, also made that point. Uh, do you think NATO will be stronger now as a consequence of Putin's terrible actions? So there's this really tragic dichotomy, right? Um, on the one hand, um, you can't, one can't help but be inspired as we see the bravery and the courage of the Ukrainian citizens against um, really difficult um, odds. At the same time, um, it, you know, in, in uh, my 20 years of active service and, and, and looking beyond that as a bit of a NATO historian, this is the most united NATO's ever been. Um, and um, you men mentioned the speech by, um, you know, Germany's new chancellor, um, and, and I think that that's worth double underlining. And, you know, I think it was one of the most pivotal uh, foreign policy speeches, I, I think, in Europe, probably since 2007, when when um, Putin made that, um, you know, uh, really, really uh, frightening speech at the Munich Security Conference. Um, uh, but, um, you know, Germany, of course, has been the economic heavyweight uh, of the European Union for many years, um, you know, but in, in many cases, because of um, national restrictions they've placed on themselves um, because of the history of the two world wars, um, Germany has not wanted to be the leader uh, on the military side of NATO. Um, and so they've always been one of the countries that sort of has a lower uh, percentage of their GDP spent on defense. And it was amazing and I think groundbreaking um, and will really change the, the future trajectory of NATO um, when Schultz announced that, you know, an immediate doubling of defense spending 
um, you know, an immediate movement away from energy reliance on Russia. Um, and, and so I, I think what we're seeing is the emergence uh, of Germany, um, you know, not, you know, not always or not always, but, you know, for quite a while has been the economic heavyweight. And, and I think that they will become uh, the military heavyweight among European countries and NATO as well. Um, and I think that has a lot of second and third order effects. So our, our closing question here, Brian, uh, we always like to close on a optimistic note. You have given us so much inside, a thoughtful information on the historical trajectory, the organizational roles, and the various adaptations of NATO before and during this this, this war. Um, are you optimistic about the future of NATO? What are the, the contributions beyond Ukraine that you look for in in a, a post Ukraine war moment for NATO. What will NATO do to help make democracies and security more common in in Europe and elsewhere? So, so I'm extremely optimistic uh, about the future of NATO um, and the three principles that it stands for: democracy, individual liberty, and rule of law. Um, you know, I wrote down a quote that that Chancellor Schultz said. Um, towards the beginning of his speech, and he said, we're entering a new era, and that means that the world we now live in is not the one that we knew before. Peace and freedom in Europe have a price tag. And um, and I think that that is really important to think about. Um, you know, before any of this crisis in Ukraine, um, you know, th- there's been democratic backsliding in a number of NATO countries uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. And, um, you know, this is an opportunity. Um, NATO, NATO has a history uh, of adapting. It needs a crisis um, to adapt in positive ways to sort of shake it um, from its state, you know, from from being in stasis. And so this is a real opportunity here. I think um, we'll see a number of initiatives that come from the alliance to enhance national resiliency, to focus on the protection of democratic processes and institutions. Um, you know, to create a real deterrence effect along the eastern flank to protect its most vulnerable allies. And I think the future is bright for NATO. That's that that's so compelling and important to hear. Zachary, as a as a young person who's been um, deeply moved by the plight of Ukrainians and shaken by the evidence of Russian aggression, we talked about this last week on the podcast. Um, do you share this optimism about NATO? And and even more important, really. Is NATO an institution that you and other young people think about and look to when you think about the future of uh, security and democracy in the world? I think NATO is definitely something that is relevant and and indeed increasingly discussed and 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 debated. But I do think it's important to note that even as NATO recommits itself to uh, its principles and the threats it was founded to counter, that there are also uh, broader humanitarian concerns and 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 moral obligations that it has to countries like Ukraine in crisis and and under threat, even if they don't have treaty obligations or or necessarily legal obligations. So I think that that that, that the new rebirth, if you will, of NATO as 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 relevant and and deeply important to almost every policy discussion that we're having today has to also come with a renewed focus on its principles. And and so you think NATO should be more involved in Ukraine? Yeah. I, I, I'm I obviously I'm not gonna pretend like I know enough to to to, to talk about that, but I think that it's important it's important for for NATO to 
to listen to people in Ukraine. And, and personally, I think that probably should be more action in Ukraine, or at least, at least, uh, uh, greater efforts to make the Ukrainian people know that we're doing as much as we can. Mm -hmm. Final word for you, Brian, any comments on that? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, um, you know, it's really difficult for me to, you know, comment on current, current policy, but I think, um, you know, bilaterally, but not through the institution of NATO, uh, many allies are doing um, a lot of things um, for for the Ukrainian people right now, um, and, and the and you know and and um, most notably the economic sanctions in the United Front that NATO members and really uh, a lot of global allies have taken uh, as well against Russia. Um, and I and I guess I would just add as well, you know. Um, I think it is fascinating um, and feeds my optimism for the future of NATO um, and the unity, really, uh, of the West. Um, you know, I saw um, a survey today from a Finnish broadcasting company. Um, in January, only 30% of Finns favored joining NATO. Today, 53%. 66% if done in tandem with Sweden. And I think that that speaks to the values that NATO stands for and how maybe um, Putin... Um, because of his, you know, uh, aggressive actions, illegal actions and war crimes, um, I think is, is waking up some historically neutral uh, countries in Europe and around the world. Um, you know, freedom and democracy are worth fighting for. And I think more and more uh, countries are seeing that. Yeah, it's such a great point, Brian and Zachary. And, and I think there's another historical uh, insight here. You know, moments of crisis, moments of horror and nightmare. Uh, they reveal a lot of things about an institution and, and a set of actors. And we've learned a lot about Vladimir Putin, not necessarily new things, but we, we've learned a lot about him in the last few days. We've learned a lot about uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the leader of, of uh, Ukraine. We've learned a lot about NATO also. And it is, I think, heartening and optimistic to see that in a time of challenge, some institutions are able to respond effectively and turn those challenges, uh, as horrible as they are, into opportunities. And it does seem that NATO, at least right now, is doing that. And we're, we're, we're fortunate to have institutions like this. The core point of your research, Brian, and your career is that these institutions matter. Uh, it's not just the policies they pursue. It's the quality of institutions. And it's a central theme in our a podcast week after week. Democracy is not just about democratic actors. It's about democratic institutions that need to be nurtured and protected and respected. And uh, we're fortunate to have NATO, uh, as imperfect as it is, nonetheless there as an institution, as you say, that can defend and promote these values that we care so much about now. And, and I think that's really central to our discussion. Brian, you have shared uh, uh, history and contemporary understanding uh, and analysis with us. You've given us a better sense of what NATO is, how it works, and where it's going. And we're very grateful for you sharing your time and insights with us today, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's absolutely been my pleasure. And um, every time I hear from Jeremy and Zachary, I learn more. Well, as you said before, I think it's more from Zachary than from Jeremy, but that's okay. <laughs> and Zachary, thank you for your poem and your question and your insights. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners. Uh, we hope you all are following the news and finding reasons for uh, productive, optimistic, historical thinking to move our world forward in this important time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. 
This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.